evening to you. Psalm 52 this evening, our journey through the Scriptures, Genesis to Revelation. If you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. Just wave to them and get their attention. They'll get a Bible into your hands. And then if you don't own a Bible, please make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you this evening. In Psalm 52, we have a psalm of rebuke toward uh, the wicked tongue or the evil tongue. And the background of this psalm is from 1 Samuel chapter 21 and 22, as the introduction tells us that it is a contemplation of David when Doeg the Edomite went and he told Saul and said to him, David has gone to the house of Ahimelech. David had been forced to flee from the presence of King Saul, and King Saul was jealous of God's anointing and favor upon David, and so he uh, attempted to kill David as if that was going to solve the problem and as if he could possibly be successful in doing that. But David was forced to flee, and he came to a city Uh, of Nob, where Ahimelech the priest was there. It did seem unusual to Ahimelech that such a high official uh, as David in Saul's kind of cabinet was out alone. And so he kind of inquired related to that, what are you doing and what's going on here? And David told him that he was kind of on top secret business. And did he have any bread and did he have a weapon of some kind? David apparently had fled with such haste that he wasn't able to, uh, you know, take those kind of things with him. And Ahimelech gave David bread and he gave him a sword. In fact, it was the sword of Goliath. And Edomite by the name of Doeg was present and he witnessed all of this. He was the chiefest of uh, Saul's shepherds. David went on his way. And then later Doeg was in the presence of King Saul. King Saul was lamenting to a group of his kind of inner circle how everybody is loving David more than him and more loyal to David than to him. And Doeg, desiring to ingratiate himself to King Saul, to gain favor from King Saul, uh, he started to work through the Rolodex of his mind. What can I say that would be flattering to Saul or cause him to view me a little more uh, highly and recognize me than he otherwise might? And he told the story of how David had gone to Nob, had met with the high priest Ahimelech, and that Ahimelech had given bread and the sword to David. But he told the story in such a way that it made it sound as if the high priest was kind of in uh, union with David and and, uh, helping him in his kind of escape from King Saul. You know, you can tell a lie just as effectively by leaving certain facts out and painting a picture that isn't accurate or isn't true. And uh, we see a lot of that in politics today. But it, it is, um, we look at that and we don't say, oh, those, you know, the politicians who do that, what terrible people they are. Nobody should do that. But we recognize the capacity for it in our own lives. Every time we give an account of something to somebody else, we have the ability to drop one or two facts that will completely alter how 
that circumstance is portrayed. And so you can give all of the facts correctly, leave out a couple of them, and knowingly leave the listener with a wrong impression of what it is that happened. And that's exactly what he did with his words. King Saul was outraged. He called for Ahimelech, all of the priests, to come before him. He ordered all of them to be slaughtered, which Doeg the Edomite did with his own hands and his own sword. And then he proceeded to the city of Nob, killed all of the wives and all of the people of the priestly family in Nob, and uh, destroyed the city. And, and so this is what David has received news of, and he writes this psalm concerning uh, Doeg. Doeg's just a, he's just a terrible human being, just a terrible, terrible human being. And he's coming up against David. You think about how many parents name their children after David. I've never run into a Doeg. I mean, his name is just mud in the Bible because of how he used speech. I'll tell you, words are so powerful. They can be so destructive. They can be worse to the heart and to the mind of a person that's on the wrong side of them as any gunshot wound. They go deeper. They go into... a an intimate place in our lives. And for those of you who have been wounded by words, and sometimes it can happen over a long period of time, a person that does not allow God to sanctify their speech so that it sounds like Christ, this tongue is such a terrible, terrible weapon. And uh, David lamented how Doeg used his, uh, his uh, you know, use of speech. And so he begins with a rebuke of Doeg. Why do you boast in evil, O mighty man? The goodness of God endures continually. And so he chides Doeg for siding with evil when God is on the side of good. And the idea is, how can you ever expect to get away with this when there is a God and he's on the side of good and you have put yourself on the side of of evil. And then David begins to graphically describe the damage that can be done by the tongue. Your tongue devises destruction. You think about how many people have been destroyed, their reputations, uh, their emotions, their mind, uh, damaged by a blow of harsh, cruel words to their to their thinking and to the thinking of themselves. Your, your tongue devises destruction and like a sharp razor working deceitfully. And so some tongues are like a sharp razor. Uh, they cut you and you don't even realize you've been cut until you look down like with a razor and you realize you've got this gaping wound and you realize, wow, I mean, five seconds later, five minutes later, that's what that person was saying and that's what that person was doing uh, to me. You love evil more than good, lying rather than speaking righteousness, Selah. You love all devouring words, you deceitful tongue. And so speaks of Doeg's uh, love for uh, words and lies that destroy people. And then David's warning to Doeg, God will likewise destroy you, uh, not in a moment in time, 
but he will destroy you forever. And he warns Doeg, you are going to face judgment from God for what it is that you have uh, done. And then he describes the kind of death that Doeg would have, that his death will come suddenly and he's going to die unexpectedly and violently. He shall take you away, pluck you out of your dwelling place, and uproot you from the land of the living. And, uh, and by the time God gets through with Doeg, gets through with his life and his legacy, uh, David says now that people will look at Doeg, the very mention of his name, he will become a byword, a warning to everyone who hears his name of the folly of using speech in an ungodly way. The righteous shall see it in fear and shall laugh at him, saying, Here is the man who did not make God his strength, but he trusted in the abundance of his riches, and he strengthened himself in his wickedness. He said these wicked things that were false in order to uh, enrich himself and in order to gain stature in the eyes of an evil man. No one ever, we do not need to have an increased stature in the eyes of wicked people, much less to compromise in order to accomplish it, which is exactly what he had done. And then David said, But I, in contrast to Doeg, am like a green olive tree in the house of the Lord. Now, an olive tree is a long-living tree. You go to Israel today, a trip to Israel will always include a, uh, a visit to the church there in the, in the Garden of Gethsemane and the region of where the Garden of Gethsemane would be. They estimate that a couple of the olive trees in that garden are 1,800 years old. That's really something. Whoever planted those never thought. I mean, you always, when you plant a tree, you always can think, this will outlive me. I mean, most often it will. And, um, but here, this will outlive my children, my grandchildren, <laughs> all the way down through 1,800 years. So an olive tree speaks of long life. And David is basically saying that what Doeg had done here was not going to affect uh, him, not going to affect God's call upon his life to become the next king. And when he talks about the house of God, that represented the presence of God where God was worshipped. And so David is saying that despite the treachery of Doeg and those that are like him, long life lies out in front of him that he would spend walking with God. And that's exactly what happened. I will praise you forever because you have done it. And in the presence of your saints, I will wait on your name for it is good. And so Doeg was about to be plucked up and rooted out of the land of the living. And then David was going to go on to become the single greatest king, purely human king, in the history of the nation of Israel. And so the future belongs to the righteous. It doesn't belong to the wicked. And the psalm teaches us that no wicked man, no lying tongue can ever derail God's plan for your life. I like Isaiah chapter 54 verse 17 on this. No weapon formed against you shall prosper. And every tongue which rises against you in judgment, you shall condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is from me, says the Lord. And so there are a lot of wicked troublemakers like Doeg in life, and um, maybe you have 
run into one or two of them even this week and been wounded by them. And always good to realize that they will never have the final say in any situation in our life. Whatever they may say, whatever damage that they do, God is greater than them all. God's plan is going to come to pass related to our lives. And David believed it, and we need to believe it as well. Psalm 53. And uh, Psalm 53 is a psalm communicating uh, the folly of atheism. And so it's almost identical to Psalm 14 when we went through that uh, four years ago. So why in the world would, uh, would God repeat uh, almost identical, not quite? Why would he repeat the same thing two different places in the book of Psalms? I think the reason that he does that is there are certain things that are worth repeating and they need to be repeated. And uh, God repeats himself a lot in the Bible. And it's not because uh, he forgot that he already said it. It's because we forget so much and we need to be reminded of certain truths all of the time. And so David wrote both Psalm 14 and Psalm 53, but it's very likely that he wrote them in two different uh, seasons in his life or under the weight of two different circumstances. And so, um, and basically what is being communicated is that atheism is foolishness to believe that there is no God. It's foolishness in this circumstance. It's foolish in that circumstance. It's foolish when we encounter it at this time in our life. It's foolish when we encounter it later in life. It's foolish uh, when uh, we encounter it in, in the life of someone in our family or at work. And it's just as foolish when we encounter it uh, in a teacher, in a a class of so-called higher education uh, in in the world today. And so atheism is, is foolish for many reasons, and God declares it to be so, and he repeats himself on the issue. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. That's the belief of a fool, that there is no God. God looks at it. God knows he exists. He, does it, he's, he never takes trips to Colorado t- to try and find himself. He knows he exists. And he has given considerable evidence for his existence, the evidence of creation, the evidence of design, the evidence of conscience inside of us, the beauty of his word that speaks so perfectly to our need and, and how it fashions our heart, our mind, our soul, our strength, the witness that the Word of God is to the existence of God, and so forth. So there's ample reason for a person to believe in the existence of God and to come to the conclusion that he doesn't exist is to uh, miss the biggest thing in life. It's a, that is a, a glaring, uh, no matter how educated a person is, no matter how intellectual a person is, if they go through life and come to the conclusion that God does not exist, God says that is a foolish person and that, because that is a foolish conclusion to come to in the light of, of the evidence. The existence of God is like the elephant in the living room. I mean, there's just no denying it. So the, the folly of the one, the foolishness of the one who says that there is no God. Now, let me be careful to say this. There can be um, people who, by the way, it was interesting to read this week that uh, they endeavored to have an atheist convention somewhere in the United States of America. They had to cancel it. Uh, 
people didn't donate enough money to have it. So apparently, um, when you don't worship the true and the living God, you know, what are you going to, what do you do? You worship yourself. So you're going to give money to something else, you know? You think about how God's people give money to the things of the Lord. I mean, you want to have a conference, you can have it tomorrow. God's people are always willing to do that. The generosity of the heart that is given to the Lord. But there is this thing where you can have a person, maybe it's you in this room right now, where you are on a legitimate search for God and you have legitimate questions about whether God really exists. And this is an honest search in your life. He's not talking about you. God is going to be faithful in your life by the Holy Spirit to take you by the hand and make sure, if you're an honest seeker, to deliver you right before the very cross of Christ where you will give your life to the Lord and become a Christian. That's where your search ends. That's where any search ends in terms of the search for God. This is talking about the person who has come to a place, a settled place in their life in the face of the evidence for God and determined within their hearts that they are going to build their lives upon uh, the idea that God does not exist. And so this is, this is their uh, determined position that they have come to. And God declares of that person that that is a foolish, they're foolish and that that's a foolish position uh, to take. Jesus spoke of the fact in terms of atheism or in terms of coming to God or not, becoming a Christian or not. Jesus said, this is the condemnation that light has come into the world, speaking of himself. But because the world loved darkness, um, it rejected the light. So whenever you have somebody who claims to be an atheist, and I'm not just, I'm not trying to just beat up on them and needlessly uh, humiliate them, but it's good, even if you're in that place tonight, it's good to listen to what God has to say about you and where you are. And Jesus says that all refusal to come to God and put their faith in Christ to begin a relationship with God, it all comes out of a moral darkness or a sin darkness in a person's life. The rejection is never intellectual because you want to you exercise your intellect, a God-given intellect, you will never exercise it in the way that you will as a Christian as opposed to not being a Christian. God will take your intellect and your mind to places nothing else and no one else will take it in this life. So God isn't afraid of people that are thinking. His concern is there aren't enough people that are thinking about the right things. And so when, when somebody says, I'm an atheist, I've rejected the existence of God, you would not be too far away from the truth to just simply ask them, what sin is it or what selfishness in your life are you unwilling to give up in order to follow Christ? And Because in the eyes of God, that's always what it comes down to. The Bible says everything is open and naked before him with whom we have to do. So he looks beyond all of the rhetoric and all of the words and all of these things, and he sees the real reason. He says, you want to know what the real reason is? It's darkness. It's darkness of heart. 
and darkness of, uh, of, of selfism. And so the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And of course, this has become completely turned upside down today. We're now in our country, at least in kind of uh, the powers that control media and, and so many things and uh, higher education and all, uh, it's been reworked. The fool has said in his heart, there is a God. So you're going to have to choose as a Christian, am I going to side with God or am I going to side with all of these other voices? And it's a lot wiser to side, of course, with God. And then God says concerning the fool that is an atheist or refuses to believe in the existence of God, there are consequences to that belief. You just, you just, a person just isn't an ape. Anything we believe fashions our conduct, fashions our thinking. And so it, to not believe in the existence of God, to not believe that one day I will stand before him and give an account to him, then that produces a certain kind of life. And he says, here's the consequences. They are Corrupt. In other words, atheism introduces a rottenness into the human condition. And they have done abominable iniquity. And that refers to things that are offenses to God. There is none who does good. And so atheism is not an influence in any way for good in the world. Always an influence uh, for uh, bad speaking morally and in terms of, of conduct. It removes some... We need as sinful human beings in order to keep us in a place where we are thinking properly, we need to be raised with the idea, the realization of the fact that one day I am going to stand before God and give an account for my life. You remove that fear of God and you remove a very needed safeguard uh, related to the conduct of men and women in a nation or a society or in the world. God looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there uh, are any who understand, who seek God. Every one of them has turned aside. They have become, together become corrupt. There is none who does good. No, not one. And then uh, he goes on and declares, Have the workers of iniquity no knowledge who eat up my people as they eat bread? Another consequence is that uh, David noticed related to those that had rejected God and the existence of God was their persecution of the godly and the righteous. It's a funny thing how while uh, wickedness and unrighteousness and wicked people and unrighteous people preach tolerance of their wickedness. And I'm not just talking about homosexuality. I'm talking about everything. They preach a tolerance of their wickedness and their evil all the way until they get into a place of having power. And then they become the most intolerant people that you'll ever want to meet. This is why we're at a tipping point related to our nation morally and spiritually. It's a big deal what happens right now in our country, and I'm talking beyond an election. There's a, it's big what's happening. And so once this group gets into power, they become very intolerant 
of any view other than their own, and they will persecute that view. And top on the list is the persecution of God's people, of Christians. Why? Because Jesus said, our lives bring a conviction to the lives of those that live wickedly. Because God has changed our lives and we are living a different kind of life, our lives preach the fact that no one needs to continue to live a wicked life. So it makes people who do responsible for doing so. And so if you're not going to accept the responsibility that I am wicked and evil because of my own choosing and your life is the one that broadcasts that to the whole wide world, then what are they going to do? They're going to try and put your light out. And so that's why you see the persecution that goes on against Christians in those kind of environments where things have tipped over into the place where the unrighteous and the wicked now control everything within the country and then Christians become uh, greatly uh, persecuted. And so this is a part of that. They eat up my people, and when they persecute uh, uh, God's people, David said, and David had seen it with his own eyes, it horrified him. He said, they persecute my people without as little thought as eating bread is a part of their meal, and they do not call upon God. There uh, There they are in great fear where no fear was for God has scattered the bones of him who encamps against you. You have put them to shame because God has despised them. So concerning the ungodly, concerning the wicked, and, uh, and the atheist, and uh, the, the atheism that uh, produces this kind of thing, uh, they, they lack a fear or respect of God in this life, but it won't go on forever. Because the very God that they do not believe in, they will stand before. And they will be judged by that God that they didn't think or want to believe existed. That's a part of their future. And it won't be a very fun experience uh, uh, for them. And then David closes with this prayer in verse 6. Oh, that the salvation of Israel... And here he's... The salvation of Israel speaks of the Messiah... He says, oh, that the, Messiah, that the Messiah would come out of Zion. So he's praying uh, for uh, the, uh, the salvation that the Messiah is going to bring, ruling out of Jerusalem when God brings back the captivity of his people. Let Jacob rejoice in Israel, be glad. And so he is praying there. Uh, for the Lord to establish His kingdom, the kingdom of the Messiah in this world centered in Jerusalem. Of course, that prayer is going to be prayed when Jesus rules and reigns on the earth for a thousand years from uh, Jerusalem. There will be no atheists in the world during the thousand-year reign of Christ. There will be rebellion but it won't be because it, 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 then the person will be exposed. This is pure wickedness, not because I'm bluffing and saying that there is no God. Everyone will know that there is a God. And so God is not impressed with the atheist. And I, I would encourage every young person, all of us, but especially the young person. And it's interesting, you, you sometimes read these books on these atheists that have these huge followings and all, and you pick up the book and... I mean, the, 
the holes in what it is that they're saying and what it is that they're uh, thinking are so gigantic, but they come across as so intellectual, so progressive. I like what uh, Norm Geisler said uh, in, in terms of his devotional reading. He says he, for his devotion, he reads the writing of atheists because he, he enjoys a good laugh Be- because it is, it is a, such a kind of a house of cards of what is required to deny the existence of God. And so God is not, uh, he's not impressed in any way with the atheist or with atheism. I certainly am not. Uh, I never had a point in my life that I didn't believe in the existence of God. I might not have known who he was and I might not have walked with him, but I've never been in that settled place where, okay, in order to protect my sin, I knew I was doing wrong. I was <laughs> going to hide behind atheism to try and justify it. So I was a little bit more sanctified as a sinner than, than some people, a little more progressive. And uh, so, but uh, I, I'm, there isn't an atheist in the world. There isn't anybody in the world, but this, the context is atheism. There isn't an atheist in the world that I would, I would look at and say, I would exchange my life for yours. I don't care what accolades they have, what education, what accomplishments, what wealth they have, any of it. I feel sorry for a person who is living this life separated from the God who has created us and from the relationship that we have been created for. I feel sorry for them in uh, a sense. And, of course, one of the greatest consequences of atheism uh, doesn't occur in this life. The greatest consequences of atheism comes in the life to come, and that's why it's important for each of us to give our life to the Lord tonight if we don't know him already. Psalm 54 is a psalm uh, that teaches us when God's people aren't faithful, God always is. The background of this psalm is 1 Samuel chapter 23. Before David became the king of Israel, King Saul was hunting for him, seeking his death. And a Jewish city, in fact, of David's tribe, a Jewish city by the name of uh, Keilah, was being attacked, attacked by the Philistines who were looting it uh, and, and all. They sent word to David, who now had a bit of a military force with him, these loyal men that were with him, to come and deliver them from the oppression of the Philistines. And so David did come. God directed him to do so. Very significant to understand. God said, you go and deliver these people from, uh, the, uh, from the Philistines. And so David did. And, and these people then now, they are, they, these are God's people. These aren't pagans out there somewhere and of David's tribe. So David delivered them from the oppression of the Philistines. So they owe everything they own to David. They owe, owe, and, and it could very well owe their very lives to David. And, and then somebody, word gets out, back to Saul, that David has done what he's done. He's in the city of Keilah. David then prays to the Lord and says, if Saul comes to hunt me down here, will the men of Keilah turn me over to Saul or will they be loyal and protect me? And God said, they'll turn you over to Saul. 
And, and so David then packed everything up with his men and they departed. Now, this is interesting because why would God take David and deliberately put him in harm's way to deliver his, God's people knowing that they would betray him after he had done so. And the reason that God did that was in training for David to become the next king of Israel. David, when he's wandering in the wilderness, he's in a preparation period of his life, as we'll see maybe in another psalm tonight. He's in a preparation period of his life for becoming king. So he's in the, he's in the uh, king school of God. So you don't just get, you just don't walk into the house and there's Samuel and he pours oil on you and everybody says, here's the next king of Israel. Shh, keep it a secret. And then you get a business card. Hi, I'm David of Bethlehem and I'm the next king of Israel. That's the fun part. The easy part is finding out the calling and then be anointed for the calling. The hard part is to be then prepared, our character to be prepared for the calling. And that's what's happening in David's life and something every leader in the world must learn, even every leader of God's people. And this is the point that David, God was making to David is, is that even when my people are fickle and unthankful for what you do, I will always be faithful to you. Because if a leader does not get that lesson built into his or her life, then every time somebody is fickle or betrays us or does something like this, we'll think it's the end of the world and we'll quit God's calling. So it's an important lesson that God is building uh, into uh, David's life. And so David writes and he says, Save me, O God, by your name, and vindicate me by your strength. Hear my prayer, O God, and give ear to the words of my mouth. And so he had saved others, and now he is in need of being saved by God. For strangers have risen up against me. And uh, actually, the whole context is found in that uh, title to the psalm, and that's why I said all of that, in case you're (laughs) wondering. That's how we know that this is the context of it. When the Ziphites went and said to Saul, is David not hiding with us? Well, we better not go backwards, even a verse or two. Um, Keep moving forward. Verse 3, for strangers have risen up against me, and oppressors have sought after my life. They have not set God before them. And so uh, they, uh, the, the, this was their condition. This is what they had done to him. And, God, and then David declared, despite the fickleness of man, he said, Behold, God is my helper, and the Lord is with those who uphold my life. He will repay my enemies for their evil. Cut them off in your truth. And so here's this prayer to God that justice would prevail in this situation and in this uh, betrayal. God had called David as king. That was God's word. And David said, God, your word, your truth concerning my life, I want that to prevail in the face of all of this opposition. It's interesting to David that it to me related to David is that he left vengeance uh, with, with God. 
He said there in verse 4, He will repay my enemies for their evil. And the Bible teaches that we are to leave vengeance to God. So, uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 19, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in, doing, in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. We can never avenge ourselves as effectively as God will avenge or protect us, and it needs to be left with Him. We do not have the wisdom or the discernment to know how far to go, how far is too much, all of these things. That's why God does not entrust vengeance to us. He tells us to leave it completely with Him and that He will take care of that vengeance. And so the good for us always to hear because some of us by personality, after a wrong has been done, almost immediately the first thought goes to vengeance. And God says, don't be doing that. It would have been a terrible mistake on David's part to avenge himself at this particular point. He was very wise in saying, God, you know all the details. You take care of it. And God promises that he will. I will freely sacrifice to you. So you say, boy, I mean, if I don't spend time thinking about revenge and then um, uh, taking revenge on my enemies or those who uh, uh, ill-treat me, that's going to free up some time in my life. What would be a more productive way to spend my life? Praising God, (laughs) giving Him worship, and giving Him praise. And so he said, I will freely sacrifice to you. I will praise your name, O Lord, for it is good, for He has delivered me out of Uh, all trouble, and my eye has seen its desire upon my enemies. And so he used this opportunity rather than investing emotionally and mentally in vengeance. He decided, I'm going to redirect away from that and direct my emotions, my mind, my time, direct them to God and giving giving him the worship uh, that he uh, deserves. And so important for us to just trust God with these wrongdoings. And just in general in life, God will take care of them. But even in our service to the Lord, when that happens, leave it with Him and let Him take care of it. I like the old saying, I've rarely regretted something I didn't say. And we just want to jump right in there. God can be rescuing a person tonight just through this lesson from the Word of God where you've got the whole thing planned out, it's going to start right here, it's going to end here, and you have the power and the authority and the resources to do it. Do not do it. Number one, you won't do a better job than God will do. And number two, you will mar it. You will mar your legacy and your witness for Christ. Don't do it. Leave all vengeance to the Lord. You lack the wisdom and the perspective that's needed to mete out a godly Uh, vengeance. Chapter 55 kind of follows in the same 
theme, and here is a psalm that is written by David related to when friends betray us. So he's been betrayed by God's people. When friends betray us, God remains faithful. So this is another very painful betrayal that God um, experienced, uh, that David experienced in his life. One day there won't be betrayal, but now there is betrayal, and uh, and and. And and that's a very, very painful experience in life. And uh, never is it probably more painful than when a friend betrays. And that includes marriages, but also beyond all of that. And so if we were forced to make an educated guess about the circumstance in David's life that Psalm 55 came out of, we would probably guess that it had to do with Absalom's rebellion against David when Absalom, his son, attempted to overthrow David as king and not only usurp him as king but also uh, kill uh, David. And if that is the case, and it looks like it is the case, this treacherous person that's described uh, a couple different times in uh, Psalm 55 would then refer to a man by the name of Ahithophel, who was a very, very close uh, friend of David, a counselor to David, a lover of God, who turned against David because of his adultery with Bathsheba and uh, David's arranged death of Bathsheba's husband, Uriah the Hittite. And the reason that he took that uh, so personally is that we know from the genealogies of the Old Testament that he was Bathsheba's uh, grandfather. So you imagine what he felt when here was this King David, the man that he had this wonderful relationship with on all levels, but especially spiritually. And then here is his friend has done this with his granddaughter and brought this shame that went out in all different uh, directions. And so the problem with Ahithophel's, if this is Ahithophel's deal, and what Ahithophel did is, is that while we can understand his bitterness against David, it is not an excuse for bitterness because bitterness, a desire for revenge, will eat us up and it will also destroy other lives. And, and so here is, uh, here is the description of David as he talks about the actions of his enemies. He says, Give ear to my prayer, O God, and do not hide yourself from my supplication. Attend to me and hear me. I'm restless in my complaint and moan uh, noisily because of the voice of the enemy, because of the oppression of the wicked. And so he's pained by what they're saying about him. He's pained by their uh, rebellion against him. For they have brought down trouble upon me, and in wrath they hate me. So he speaks of the hatred that uh, was directed toward him, these who had been previously his friend. My heart is severely pained within me, the emotional price he's paying for this, and the terrors of death have fallen upon me. They were seeking to kill David during this episode. He said, fearfulness and trembling have come upon me, and horror has overwhelmed me. So he's overwhelmed with fear and horror during this chapter in his life when he fled Jerusalem into the wilderness. It looked like he wouldn't survive the day. And then he said, so I said, oh, that I had wings like a dove. I would fly away and be at rest. 
Indeed, I would wander off and remain in the wilderness, Selah. So while he's running, as he's fleeing from Jerusalem off into the Judean wilderness, he thought, I'd love to have just a nice little quiet place in Greece. (laughs) I'd like to be anywhere but here. And he wants to escape the problem. Everybody understands that. When they're in the middle of something, especially when God calls us to do something, and then he doesn't say, oh, by the way, because you're being treated this way, you get to quit. And not only does he not let us quit, but every time we hand in the resignation, he sniffs at it. He won't accept it. Oops, look at that. I didn't know I had that kind of power. So he won't take it into his hands. So, all right, check, check, check. Okay, check, 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 check. There we go. All right. So it wasn't screwed in all the way. So they never expect me to move. I'm like a statue up here. And so that it always shocks them in what they're doing. So David, he wants to just get out of there. And, but he has a calling to fulfill as the king of Israel And he can't just say, oh, this circumstance is hard on me, so I'm going to abandon all of the righteous people in Israel and allow them to be taken over by a bunch of power-hungry, bitter, uh, evil, wicked men. So he realizes, I can't flee. You know, the desire to flee, of course, that's a self-motive. That's that's selfishness and self-preservation. And David, he's feeling that, but thankfully he didn't give uh, in to that. He said, I would hasten my escape from the windy storm and the tempest. That's what he wanted to do, was tempted to do. Thankfully, he didn't do it. He said, destroy, O Lord, and divide their tongues, for I have seen violence and strife in the city. Bring confusion to their plans to overthrow me. You remember David when he fled the city and he found out that Ahithophel was joined with Absalom in the rebellion. He immediately he prayed to the Lord and he said, you know, bring, make the counsel of Ahithophel to be foolishness. And so he, he recognized that and, and asked for the dividing of their tongues, confusion uh, between their communication. Day and night they go around it on its walls. Iniquity and trouble are also in the midst of it. Destruction is in the midst of it. Oppression and deceit do not, apart, uh, do not depart from the streets. And so the influence of, of the, uh, the unrighteous in the city as a result of David's uh, being forced to flee. And then he speaks of this betrayal, the the particularly painful uh, betrayal in all of this. He said, For it is not an enemy who reproaches me, then I could bear it. Nor is it one who hates me, who has exalted himself against me, then I could hide from him. But it was you, a man my equal, my companion, and my acquaintance. And we took sweet counsel together and walked to the house of God in the throng. And so this was a fellow lover of God, a friend that he had. Again, it matches Ahithophel. And then David declared, let death seize them, let them go down alive into hell. In other words, God stopped their ungodly plan and, and, and their ambitions. And so he asked that the Lord would, uh, if necessary, you remember in the Old Testament when Korah led a rebellion against Moses 
and uh, Moses let God defend him in that. And, uh, and what did God do? God opened up the earth and swallowed up Korah and everyone that had joined him in the, in the rebellion. And so he, David's praying for something f- similar. Let death seize them. Let them go down alive into hell, for wickedness is in their dwellings and among them. Now, the interesting thing about this is that by the time this whole story unfolds, Ahithophel is dead. He commits suicide. Absalom, David's son, ends up killed by Joab. He dies in battle. And 20,000 frontline soldiers of, uh, of Israel who joined in the rebellion, they end up dead. And so uh, God did bring a judgment against them. They were not successful in, in overthrowing David for the simple reason that David was God's man. He was not a perfect man, but he was God's man uh, to be the king of Israel until his death. And then he said, as for me, David begins to speak of his confidence in the Lord to protect him. I will call upon God and the Lord shall save me evening and morning and at noon. I will pray and cry aloud and he shall hear my voice. He has redeemed my soul in peace from the battle that was against me for there were many against me. And God will hear and afflict them, even he who abides from of old, Selah, because they do not change, therefore they do not fear God. And David recognized they think they're fighting against me, but they're fighting against God because David is saying, listen, if I had my way, I'd be living in Greece right now on one of those islands. I am doing what I am doing. I am the king of Israel because God has told me to do this. So they think they're fighting against me, but they're fighting against God. And you can't win in a fight against God. And he has put his hands against those who were at peace with him. Again, further revelation of uh, Ahithophel's kind of method with David. He has put forth his hands against those who were at peace with him. He has broken his covenant. The words of his mouth were smoother than butter, but war was in his heart. His words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn swords. And so somehow following this uh, great uh, sin of David, Ahithophel had been more than cordial to David, had given the indication that bygones were bygones, etc., etc., and yet in his heart he was, had this bitterness against him. And, uh, and though he was speaking one thing, appearing to be one thing, his heart was someplace completely different, uh, desiring for the day that he could be a part of the destruction of David. Cast your burden on the Lord, and he shall sustain you. He shall never permit the righteous to be moved. And that's the take-home lesson of the whole psalm. The New Testament tells us in, in the... First uh, Peter, where Peter writes and he tells us, casting all of our cares on him because he cares for us. And so David says, cast your burden, your cares on the Lord. He shall sustain you. He shall never permit the righteous to be moved. God will protect his call upon our lives and he will make sure that the wicked are never successful in uh, undermining what his purpose is for our life. And then it, it, he says, But you, O God, shall bring them down to the pit of destruction. Bloodthirsty and deceitful men shall not live out half their days, but I will trust 
in you. And so this uh, confidence in God as he just says, God, I know you're going to have the final say in all of this. Your providence is going to prevail. You're, you're the one that's going to come out on top in this very, very bitter trial that I'm in the middle of. They're not going to come out on top. And of course, what David was experiencing was a, a small in comparison to uh, the betrayal that Jesus uh, experienced by Judas. Iscariot. He poured all of, the, all of his life. He gave access to Judas Iscariot for three and a half years. And then Judas comes in and, do, and not only betrays him with buttery words and these kind of things, but he betrays him with a kiss. And I think it's, always, it's interesting to me that Jesus said, Judas, betrayest thou the Son of God with a kiss? It was like... Wow. I mean, so, I mean, obviously Jesus knew it, but uh, pretty amazing that that was what he was doing and how he did it, the whole act that he put on. And, uh, of course, it teaches us that if if Judas couldn't do any harm to the will of God for Jesus, then uh, then he is not going to allow uh, anybody, their betrayal, uh, to do any harm to us and our walk in our calling with the Lord. I like Psalm 76:10 related to this. The song, that verse says, Surely the wrath of man shall praise you. God will always take these kind of things and He will overwhelm them, work them for His purposes in our lives. He will have the final say in all of this. And now Ahithophel gives us kind of a living example in Psalm 55 of exactly why it is important for us to leave revenge or vengeance to the Lord. Ahithophel was a remarkable man. If he had not given in to vengeance and bitterness, he would have been one of the heroes in, in the whole Old Testament. A tremendous counselor. God spoke through that man. It was... Amazing how God spoke through him. His name was a proverb. It was just synonymous with if Ahithophel opens his mouth, this is the wisdom that comes from God. And he had blessed David with that wisdom. The nation had been blessed. He was a deep, deep lover of God. And yet all of it was spoiled by this sin that was committed against him to be sure. And, and yet he couldn't give it up. He wanted to take personal vengeance against David. David was not a perfect man by any stretch of the imagination. And that chapter in his life with Bathsheba and with um, the arranged killing and, and involved with the death of, of her husband Uriah the Hittite, I mean, it's just unspeakable. It's indefensible. But... It wasn't the totality of David's life. In general, you know, David's life, he was a man after God's own heart. And he walked with God deeply and purely before that. Obviously, he went sideways in his relationship with God for all of that to happen. But then when the easiest thing would have been for David following his sin would have been to run from God's call when God said, I know what's happened here. I know what is is." has occurred here, 
and you're going to pay a personal price for what you've done here, but I want you to continue as the king of Israel. When the easiest thing for David would have been to fly, to flee away someplace else, find an anonymous place and just live, change his name and get under the Witness Protection Act and have nobody know that he was David ever again. And yet he stays right in that place, and I really respect him for that. And God knew David's heart, and God knew that David was the real deal. He really did love God. And, excuse me, God knew that David did pay a very deep emotional price for the rest of his life for his sin, though that was, he, he kept that private to himself except for a couple of psalms. And, and God knew all of these things about David. And again, the easiest thing would have been for him to flee, but he didn't flee. He remained faithful to God's call all the way to the end. And so God was able to look at David in a way and with information that Ahithophel did not possess. And so when Ahithophel says, I'm going to get into the revenge game here, he got on the wrong side of God because David now in his confession of sin and in his repentance was again back on the right side of God. And God did not want anybody else's help in chastening David. And so when Ahithophel jumps in, and now he is going to try and take this into his own hands, what he soon discovers is he is not only on the wrong side of David, but he is on the wrong side of God. And so when Absalom comes on the scene and says, I'm looking for some leaders to help me overthrow my father and establish a different kingdom. Ahithophel was on board immediately because God told him to. Now, that wasn't the most important thing in Ahithophel's life anymore. It was an opportunity to exact revenge on David. And it didn't matter to Ahithophel at this point whether God was wanting him to do that or not. And so under the influence of bitterness, under the influence of uh, this desire for revenge, when he heard of that opportunity, he jumped on board and all of it became a terrible, terrible mess. And the lesson is this. If someone as godly as Ahithophel if someone as mightily used as Ahithophel could not properly handle vengeance and exact revenge for a wrong that was done to him, then how much more ill-equipped are we to do that? And so I hope in the light of the Psalms that we've looked at here tonight that if any of us have that kind of thing brewing in our heart, that the Word of God would just take it away, just cut it out of our hearts and out of our lives and say, you leave that to God, you will only make a mess even more messier if you try to go there. And so the importance of, of leaving vengeance with the Lord and being careful of bitterness in our hearts. Of course, that beautiful verse in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15, concerning bitterness and where the writer says, looking carefully. So we want to examine our own hearts tonight. Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God.
lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many come, become defiled. Many people became defiled by David's, by Absalom's and Ahithophel's bitterness, and many people died as a result of that. And the reason for bitterness in our hearts is because it, when in, toward another member of the body of Christ is because we always underestimate the grace of God. Ahithophel had this much grace for David, and he didn't realize that God had a lot more grace for David. And we must be very careful not to underestimate God's grace toward his people. Otherwise, we'll be tempted to take up the sword, exact our own revenge, find ourselves on the wrong side of God, and really in deep trouble at that particular point. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Thank you, Lord, for these songs. Thank you for what happened between David and you and all of these different seasons in life. Thank you that by your Spirit you have just put all of this out so we could learn from his experiences. All of the emotion, all of the thinking, all of the trusting in you, all of these glorious things that we get to learn, Lord, so that we don't make the same mistakes. And I just pray as we close tonight very much on this theme of vengeance. I just pray and we pray for one another. It's so strong in some of us, Lord. We pray that your word would just wash away any existing desire for vengeance in any heart tonight. And we pray, Lord, that you'd use these psalms to protect us against this temptation in the future, Lord. We never want to underestimate the greatness of your grace toward your people. We love the fact that your grace is great toward us, but we're prone to underestimate it, the greatness of it toward others, Lord. And so we ask that you continue to grow us into people who are as gracious as you are, Lord, in our dealings with one another. Thank you for your word. Thank you for being able to begin the new week and kind of end the weekend and begin the new week in this way, centered upon you and the things of you. We ask that you bless us this week. Bless us every day this week, Lord. And then give us eyes to recognize that blessing as coming from you. Thank you, Lord, for being our God, the privilege of walking with you and representing you this coming week. Give us the grace and the help to do that. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.